BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Ah, welcome back to Heard Tell. Thank you so much for giving us the most important thing you have, your time. So we try to do what we always do, turn down the noise of a very noisy news cycle, get to the information we actually need to discern the times we live in, skip all the caterwaul and skip all the nonsense, just try to talk about some things that actually matter so we know what's going on. I want to start with this. Um, We live in serious times. Now, I like to have fun. We do things on our social media like the food group. We joke around. I like memes. I'm good at memes. I can make little jokes. Um, I enjoy to have a good time. There's a time to be serious. There's a time to have fun. Work hard, play hard, right? You've heard that. Or, you know, there's also the revolver theory of life. You ever heard that one? You know, revolver, you got six shots for the rest of your life. Be real careful about which six you do. You need to be serious. And then when you want to have a little bit of fun or crack a joke or something, when you're serious and people know to take you seriously, those can actually be more effective. Vice versa is a little harder. If you're goofy all the time and you're not serious, it's really hard for people to take you seriously. Ask comics who try to break into being you know, dramatic actors. A few have done it. A few have been really good at it. But it's hard. You get typecast as a comedian, the funny guy, that sort of thing. There's nothing wrong with having fun. Nothing wrong with joking around. There's nothing wrong with having distractions. But we do live in very serious times. The times we've lived in in the last few weeks have been very illuminating about who are serious people and who are not. Here's the thing about crisis. It clarifies. Crisis always reveals and clarifies. See, what we should be doing as people is seeking truth. What's real? What's not? What's the meaning of things? What's not the meaning of things? Looking for truth. Now, this is something human beings have been doing since the first couple of human beings figured it out and decided what truth was as a concept. Like, do we seek truth? What's good? What's bad? What's God? What's not God? What's good for us? What's not good for us? Seeking truth is really hard and is complicated and has a lot of levels to it. You can't always tell what the truth is. So when you can't tell the truth or you got something really complicated, the next best thing on the path to getting to the truth is getting some clarity. 
now in crisis, people get upset and they get overloaded and it's just so much. It's so much. We're getting ready to do our, uh, what we try to do annually, our mental health episode about how we consume the news that'll be coming out soon. But crisis, if we handle crisis correctly, if we handle the noisy times correctly, if you handle the hard times correctly, crisis clarifies. It can be like a refining fire because it kind of strips away all the crap that doesn't matter. And you find out who you really are and what you really believe because that's all you can do because that's all you got the bandwidth for. When we see something like the terrorist attack in uh, Israel and Gaza and Hamas and Palestine and Israel and all that hot mess there, and the reaction to people, it's clarifying because it's such a black and white thing that gets thrown in somebody's face when you have a death count and violence like that. And now we have the Israeli response. It gets right in people's faces and they got to deal with it. And it clarifies what people think about that issue. And you can see it all over social media. It's the same way with our political leaders. Crisis clarifies. It's really, really easy to just spout off in front of a microphone or at the podium in the House or in the well of the Senate or in the Brady briefing room if you're president when things are good. You can basically say whatever you want because, number one, most people ain't paying attention anyway. And number two is you get to kind of pick your narrative and, well, I want to talk about jobs today or I want to talk about the economy or I want to talk about this rural initiative I have or I want to talk about tech regulation. You, you can set your own narrative. When crisis comes, you can't do that. You have to respond to the crisis and it reveals leadership. When we look at what's going on in the world today, we talk about leadership a lot with these elected officials, because I'm kind of over what your party designation is, and I'm really over what your words are and your buzzwords and how your social media operation works. Judge people by their actions. And in crisis is when you can really tell people's actions what they actually believe. Elected officials especially. What did they do during the mess in Congress when there was a leadership void, who was trying to take leadership, who was trying to find a leader on the Republican side. We're talking here, who was trying to make it better, who was just trying to agitate and make it worse, who was just looking out for themselves and nothing else. You can judge leadership that way. Democratic party in the house, we could not really judge Hakeem Jeffries leadership just yet, but he did everything he was supposed to do. Stayed out of the way while his opponents made a mess. He's just sitting there looking good because all he has to do is not be the chaos agent But when he gets his turn as Speaker of the House, which I suspect he's going to get in 2024, that'll change. And now we're going to judge him on his crisis management. Now he deals with things. It goes with the same with the Republicans in the Senate and the Republicans and the Democrats in the Senate and the House and Congress and, you know, your state houses, your legislatures, your assemblies, your House of Delegates, your state senates, your governors. You can go down to your local folks. When there's a crisis in your local municipality, what local leader do you look for? Is it the person that just spouts off buzzwords or got elected because they got an endorsement from a certain candidate? Or is it somebody that goes, oh, man, half the town burned down. What does so-and-so think about it because he's our leader? Or what does so-and-so think about it because I know she's in charge and knows how to handle it? Crisis clarifies. So what we could do that would be really healthy here is as one crisis goes and we go into the inevitable law and then you wait for the next crisis to come because there's another crisis coming. They're like waves. They never stop coming. Maybe we should take a minute to review how people handled this present crisis, whatever it is, whether it's the mass murder up in Maine and how people react to that, 
the situation overseas in Israel, our own Congress, how they deal with things. We're having an election right now, a presidential election where people are not really paying attention to people because it feels like a foregone conclusion who the two candidates are going to be. And we know them really well. That should tell us something, too. Maybe we should review how people handle this crisis and judge them in the law before the next crisis comes so we're not surprised. And by the way, you can do this with everybody else, too. Commentators, talking heads, people that have programs. You can do it with me. You know, social media is searchable, right? Is people on their Twitter feeds and on their Facebook posts and their Instagram posts or their sub stacks or their writing or whatever, have they been consistent on issues through the years? Have they changed, but they go this is new information, so I'm changing my position based on this? Or did they get new information and we all got new information on something and they stuck to it anyway, even though we all know it's not true? You can judge people that way. Oh, I know. Somebody will go, there's a Bible verse, judge not. Number one, that's bad theology. We could do a whole couple of hours on what that verse is actually talking about. But no, you need to be discerning. You need to judge. You need to fruit inspect. If you're uh, of the uh, biblical persuasion, nothing wrong with inspecting the fruit of a tree to see what it's actually bearing. What do we say? Actions, not words. Use these crises to not just surf through the headlines and get overwhelmed with the news media. Look at our elected leaders. Look at our thought leaders. Look at those influencers. Look at the people that you curate into your media feed and start making some judgment calls on how they conduct themselves in crisis. Because that's when you really find out what they believe and what they're about. Maybe you should do a little pruning on that tree after you do the fruit inspecting. It's a very healthy thing for the tree. It's a very healthy thing for you. Leadership matters. Everything rises and falls on leadership. And we don't talk about it enough, especially in times of crisis. Because not just who did good or who did bad, but we need to adjust and act accordingly based on what their actions told us in these times of crisis. And our own actions, if they're not in line with our values and our morals and what we really, really believe and our actions are showing that on our social media and in our discourse and how we're dealing with crises, we probably ought to go find a mirror, log off for a little while, and get ourselves straight. It's an all-hands thing, this leadership thing, this clarity thing, this honesty thing. Where are you at on it? More Heard Tell right after this. Welcome back to Herd Tell. We like to keep it friendly here. We like to let people live and let live, let them do what they want to do. However, this is the time of the year where some standards must be enforced. Halloween is over, which means there are some of you, not all of you, maybe not even a majority of you, but there are some of you who insist on being Stark Raven heathens and skip Thanksgiving and go directly to Christmas now that Halloween is over. I need you to get your life together. Christmas starts after Thanksgiving dinner. Now, Thanksgiving afternoon, as soon as we eat dinner, go crazy. Start decorating, start playing Christmas carols, all that good stuff. 
but no Christmas until after Thanksgiving. Now, I know there's people. There are bad folks and evil lurking in the far corners of the Internet who want to start Christmas now. They want to start playing that atrocious Mariah Carey song. They want to start doing Christmas carols. They want to do all this Christmassy stuff now, the first day of November, the year of our Lord, 2023. They must be resisted. Don't be like that. We must give thanks first. And then the Christmas holiday season or whatever you celebrate as you're like, I'm being a little facetious here, but can we not just jump from one disposable income holiday to the next after another, after another, after another, after another? I know that's the world we live in, but Thanksgiving is an important holiday. I think we should take a minute between Halloween, which has been, you know, growing in importance for a lot of folks and the Christmas holiday season or whatever you celebrate at the end of the year and the New Year's and whatever, can we just go ahead and have that Thanksgiving pause in there? Even if you're not going to do the turkey dinner thing, please do some family stuff. We can slow down the onslaught of Christmas. We finally started to kill off some of the Black Friday madness. Good on us. But now we can slow down, and I know it's a consumer time of the year. I know it's a buy stuff time of the year. I know it's the end of the year, and different cultures have different ways of celebrating. Nothing wrong with a little Thanksgiving. Put a little pause on whatever you're doing between Halloween and Christmas. Go ahead and celebrate Thanksgiving, fall festival, harvest season, equinox, whatever you want to call it. Have a little family time. Enjoy yourself. Be thankful. Eat some really good food. Enjoy watching football. Spend some time with the family. Then we can have a big Christmas blowout as soon as we do all of that. Just my two cents. And in my humble but accurate opinion, more heard tell right after this. Welcome back to Hertel. Okay, let's talk about the new right, which is a lot like the old right, except it ain't, and what the freedom movement could and couldn't mean to the new right, because how many times have we heard about the new young people coming in? Problem is, they turn into middle-aged people like me. Jonas Dews joining us. Originally from Atlanta, he's up at Columbia. Now he's actually sitting over at Oxford as we talk to him. You're a global traveler, my friend. How are you? I'm doing well, Andrew. How are you? Uh, actually, I was in Atlanta last weekend, so it's funny how the world turns. Appreciate your time today. Uh, he does a lot of things. He has uh, the Columbia Independent, which we're going to talk about in a little bit, a publication at Columbia. Let's start there. Um, I know I'm still with Young Voices as an alumnus and mentor and all those other things, but I'm not really that young anymore. I can admit it. I'm, I'm okay with it. You're still young. Part of having a little bit of age is, though, I've heard this young voter argument over and over and over again for pretty much my entire life. Forty years from now, they'll be having an argument over young voters again. Where do we start to get into where the young voters in the American political system are right now? Because we do have some data. You've got data points in your piece that we're going to link to as well. Where do we start, though? Because just the numbers and the percentages don't really tell the whole story, does it? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the first thing that is important to recognize is just how important with every election Gen Z and millennials are going to be. So, you know, coming up in 2024, we're going to be about 40% of the electorate. And that's 
about as many as the baby gener- baby boomer generation and older. So right off the bat, like this is going to be a huge electorate and it's going to be important in deciding sort of where the future of elections goes. So with that being said, in terms of the sentiment of young voters, I think Gen Z is in a very strange position. We're sort of coming of age at a time where there's so many changes happening. I mean, I was in high school, I was a junior in high school when the pandemic hit. I was in middle school when Donald Trump first got elected. When the Ukraine war happened, I was studying international relations in college. So all of these changes, all of these changes that are leading to sort of a new world order are sort of happening when we're, you know, becoming of age to vote, um, becoming, you know, young adults. So these have, these experiences have certainly shaped our anxieties, our uncertainties about the future, not only of ourselves and our economic futures, but also the future of the country and, and the world. Yeah, Jonas Dude joining us. Let, let's use that because I think it's a good way to talk about this. You've studied international relations. That also means you study history. That new world order, and I know people flinch at that, but just for lack of a better term, whatever the world is becoming right now under our feet, the thing that is shifting, I think one of the things that we don't talk enough about, especially in America culture and politics, the post-World War II, you mentioned the baby boomers, that post-World War II, we kind of coasted on that for a long time. And then the 80s and the 90s and the 2000s, you know, the 90s when I graduated high school in my formative years, somewhere in there we had the divergent point off of coasting off the post-World War II generation to whatever's going on now. You can pick your different divergent points. A lot of people would say 9-11 for Americans. Some people say the late 2000s economic trouble. Some people say Donald Trump. You just mentioned that. Whatever point in there in that 20-year period you want to pick, that's a major culture and political shift, and it's a generational shift. And we really haven't talked about it that much as like, hey, that post-World War II order, this is different now. This is a different thing. And now with the boomers passing off the scene just because of age and time, I don't know that we've fully dealt with that, have we? I don't think that we have. I mean, the stereotype is the boomers going to Gen Z and being like, oh, why can't you do the same things that we did? Why can't you get a job and afford a house? I mean, that's sort of the joke that gets passed around. And although, you know, it is a joke and there are issues with the attitudes of Gen Z, it is a different world that we're growing up in. I mean, we have college graduates from, you know, Ivy League universities who are struggling to make ends meet and feeling just a different reality than what our parents or grandparents were feeling. Yeah, Jonas Dude joining us. You just did it yourself, though, because you said boomers to Gen Z, so all the Gen X people get mad and go, hey, you're forgetting us again. That's part of the conversation, too, right, is because all these groups, they're kind of amalogous. People don't really know whether they fit in them or not. How do you break them down? Give me the nomenclature there. What do you consider to be Gen Z? Because that term gets thrown around a lot. What does it mean to you, and how do you define it? So Gen Z, I guess, as a definition, I would define as about uh, people born 2000 and onwards. And now we're starting to see, you know, the next generation after that. Um, But yeah, generally between 2000 and 2010, I would say perhaps. And before that, the 10, 15 years before that, I would consider to be um, millennials, to be Gen X. So I would say in terms of political views, I would actually say millennials and Gen Z are very similar, actually. And I think that the trend that's being set out by millennials is very worrying for the right in terms of what it means for Gen Z, because typically we think of generations as getting more conservative as they age. 
but um, we don't see that trend with millennials. We, they are, by some measures, the least conservative 35-year-olds in recorded history. And if anything, the evidence points that Gen Z will be the same. So I would say that that's sort of how I'd break down the two groups. You were writing about this in USA Today. This is a startling statistic to me, how the youth vote breaks down in the midterms. Last year, 63% of 18 to 29-year-olds voted Democrat for the House races. You go back to 84 and Reagan, it was almost reversed. 60% of the youth vote went to Reagan and even uh, into 88, still in the mid-50s. That's a big, I don't even know that it's a generation swap. That's a complete reversal. Why is the Republican Party having so much? Because it's almost dug into dogma and the narrative and the news coverage now. It's like, oh, youth voters, they're all going to be for the Democratic Party. They're going to be more progressive. They're going to be more whatever term you want to use. That's just ingrained now over the last few election cycles. Why is that? Why are Republicans having so much trouble with that when historically they would have done pretty good? Those adults we're talking about now that growing up, you know, my generation, the older folks that are starting to look at their mid 40s and 50s, they did go for the Republicans and now they don't. What changed? Absolutely. And that's a, a great observation. And I would point to two things. So first of all, you can see, um, first of all, I talk a little bit about how Gen Z is the most diverse generation we've seen so far. We have many immigrants, many children of immigrants, people of all sorts of races, uh, sexualities, genders now. And because of that, they've been exposed to sort of the pluralism of the younger generations. And when somebody like Donald Trump comes on the scene and makes a lot of his campaign about targeting sort of groups like immigrants and Muslims and things like that, and that gets blown up in the media, obviously, that really turns off Gen Z in terms of the values that it has towards sort of um, living in a pluralistic society with people sort of all of all different backgrounds and when you have the focus on someone as polarizing as trump um you're not going to be able to even get into the policy conversation for a lot of people they see an image of trump they see the um quick hits that they show on TikTok and on youtube and the news and that's an instant turnoff and they feel like that's what the republican party represents and the second thing is for the people that actually are wanting to talk about policy. They, again, are growing up in a time of great economic uncertainty, of uh, great sort of national and international turmoil. And they don't see Republicans offering real solutions to that. And you, didn't, and you can see this in the Republican Party platform. They did not even bother to write one in the 2020 election. So, you know, these young people, they are looking for solutions. And naturally for them, um, you know, government is the easy answer. And when you, you have de Democrats saying, let's have the government fix this, let's have the government fix that, there sort of is no room for things like free market principles and for um, actual conservative solutions to, the, to some of these issues. So I would, I would say that that's how um, Gen Z has sort of become so left.
Yeah, Jonas Dew joining us. We're going to link to his entire piece in USA Today. A lot of links in there you want to click in. The piece itself has got some good data sets. One of those data sets is that they're suspecting that eventually Gen Z and the millennials are going to be about 50% of the electorates in short order as these boomers start to pass off the scene. But it's more than that because millennials, that's 81 to 96 or so, depending on which set of number you want, they're going to be in their prime earning years and their money-making years, 30s to their 50s, right? The Gen Zs are going to be start coming out of college and start working, and they're going to get into the workforce. These are demographic changes that really affect people's politics. They buy their first home. They have their first children. They start. The millennials are going to start looking towards retirement. They're looking at you know generational wealth, and can they pass it? All those things affect politics. How is that going to affect the politics of these groups going forward, do you think? And how do the parties need to try to adjust to that? I think that these are going to have profound impacts on policy. So I think you mentioned homeownership, right? So many college graduates are struggling to find even rent a home, let alone buying a house is out of the question, finding somewhere to raise a family. So these are real concerns that are affecting people coming out of college, people entering the workforce, people trying to build generational wealth. Um, there are real barriers in place. And, and, and one thing I hear often from especially grad students is the question of student loans. And I think that when you have sort of Democrats saying, like, let's forgive all the student loans, that's really attractive to somebody who is trying to build generational wealth versus, you know, Republicans saying that, like, no, we're not going to touch it. Um, we're not going to offer sort of a conservative alternative to that. Um, so I think that economic concerns primarily are going to become um, very prominent. But the the point that I would emphasize is that typically we think that economic concerns mean that, you know, you're going to become more conservative, you want to pay less taxes, you want smaller government, you want more freedom to sort of set up your own life. And we just aren't seeing that as much as we did with previous generations with the millennials that are now entering the stage that you talk about. And that's really worrying. And if Republicans don't do something to actually speak to the concerns that young people are facing, then they're going to be they're going to continue declining in vote share. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on the Hurt Tell Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. they got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics from the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutans. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, 
exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? This is the podcast for you. Find The Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcasts or at www.thesweatypenguin.com. Yeah, Jonas Dude joining us. I want to talk about this heterodox term you touched on. You talk about your publication being heterodox. You started out talking about how this generation, the Gen Zs, the millennials too, but really the Gen Zs are so diverse. It's not just demographically diverse, they're ideologically diverse. There's a real need for heterodox thinking. I want you to talk about that term because I discovered it like when I was doing radio in Wilmington, which is a very, you know, progressive democratic enclave, but it's a coastal area. So people have like big thoughts on the environmental area because it's a coastal area. Everybody's outside all the time. But school choice was a big deal, even though it was a democratic enclave, because there was, you know, a scandal in the schools where, you know, there was sexual assault by students and teachers and things like that. So school choice and environmentalism, which is usually of course those two groups came together on stuff, things like that. Different cities have different needs, different regions, different places. And the diversity in Gen Z is really starting to show off on some of this heterodoxal thought. Just break that term down and walk folks through that, because folks would have used to say strange bedfellows. But a lot of this rising generation, no, they just think things through and they just don't think straight down a party line anymore. Right. Absolutely. I think heterodox is going to be the future of young voters. And the reason I say that is because you think about where heterodox, the word comes from, right? It's in contrast to orthodox, to orthodoxy, right? And we have we have some kinds of orthodoxy here. We have the orthodoxy of the left, which is hyper alienating. That's the orthodoxy of, you know, you have to agree with us or you're racist, you're sexist, you're whatever, you, you know, this is the country is racist. Uh, we need to, you know, tear the system down, um, you know, free Palestine, you know, that's been really in the news lately. That's the orthodoxy of the left. And then you have the stuff of the right, which is like, let's support Donald Trump, no matter how many times he gets indicted, no matter how bad his policies are, right? That's sort of the MAGA populist um, orthodoxy. And you can see these sort of manifest absolutely on college campuses and, and beyond. And what that does is that that leaves not enough room for people that don't agree with either of those camps. So heterodoxy, I think, is going to be the future because so many people feel like they don't have a home, right? They feel like they don't agree with either side. They like some of the stuff that, you know, some people on the right, some some thinkers on the right might be saying, some thinkers on the left might be saying, um, but they just, at the end of the day, they want to talk about policy. They want to talk about real solutions to the things that they're experiencing. And I think heterodoxy with its freedom from, you know, adhering to a certain party or a certain label or ideology, I think is going to be a way for uh, politicians to appeal to that. Yeah, Jonas, dude, joining us, you mentioned it in your piece. If you use the term conservative, the poll numbers go through the floor in a hurry. But then if you go through some of the individual policy positions, they poll a lot better. The terminology has changed. It's lost a lot of its meaning. You just mentioned it. You know, you mentioned in your piece as well, some of the college level, you know, the turning points of the world that are just, you know, political I'll just call it what it is. They're money-making machines, and they just say ridiculous things. 
these things turn off young people. They actually do want substance. They just they don't just want the buzzwords. And you find that where you see this polling data of, well, they don't just want to hear about liberal or progressive or conservative. They actually want to hear about the ideas and they actually want to know if you've got something substantive to you. Is that how it feels to you as well? I think that it's sort of both ways. So on one hand, there are very loud voices that make it sound like people don't care about ideas, that as soon as you say conservative, they start screaming and they start posting on social media and they try to shut you down. But on the other hand, there's the individual people, there's the quantity of people that I'm talking to that are not part of the loud voices. So, you know, as the editor of the Columbia Independent, I'm always around campus, I'm always at campus events, and I'm always introducing myself and talking to students who are not necessarily in the center of the political culture, in the in the sort of defining voices category. And I talk to them and they're like, yeah, I mean, I really agree with a lot of, with free speech, especially with, which is a principle of our magazine. I agree with a lot of the ideas that your writers are putting forth that are maybe more on the right-leaning side. And that's in great contrast to sort of the voices that are happening on the left. Um, so, yeah, I think that there's sort of a dual reality go, depending on how you're, depending on the people that you're talking to. Yeah, Jonas Dude joining us. When you do something like that, where you're talking to people, when you're talking to the people on the campus, how different is it from the perception online? Because we, we understand that things like social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, you know, TikTok videos, especially because they're so condensed. That stuff's all kind of funhouse mirror, right? It's all pumped up for the public expressions. What? How big a disconnect is it when you're actually talking to people one on one? Is the per <laughs> excuse me? Is the perception really that different in person than it is online? Because I got to believe it is, because the online's such a hot mess right now. Yeah, it really is such a hot mess, and I mean that's why you see. Um, Twitter accounts like, you know, libs of TikTok sort of absolutely blow up when they sort of just collect a couple of these wild people online and then post them on Twitter. You know, I don't think that's actually representative. I think there are people who believe very radical things that are out there, but I don't believe they come anywhere near to a majority. In fact, what I would say is that a majority of the people at Columbia are just sort of politically ambivalent, right? They maybe are interested, maybe are not interested. They maybe read the news um, once a week, twice a week. Um, but they're not like going out there and protesting. They're not going out there and attending all of these lectures and events that are happening on campus, but they're interested politically. And these are the people that are very reachable. These are the people that, you know, if you sit down and talk to them, they'll actually want to have conversations with you. And I think that's a very valuable insight that um, needs to be taken advantage of um, in order for the right to be able to actually come in and present ideas. Yeah, Jonas Dude joining us. The pieces in USA Today, Trump and GOP turn off young voters. Here's how Republicans can appeal to them. I love the heterodox part of this because I think everybody's just going to have to learn to give up. One of the problems with the politics is everything's become hardline. You can't talk about disagreeing with things. You're going to have to give people a little bit of room. We're going to link to the whole piece. Make sure you read the whole thing. Uh, Jonas, let folks know where they can keep up with you and follow you until we get you back on the program again next time, my friend. 
Absolutely. Um, you guys can find me on X, formerly Twitter, at Jonas Ydu. That's J-O-N-A-S-Y-D-U. And um, you can follow my work at the Columbia Independent at ColumbiaIndependent.org. Yep, he's another one of our great Young Voices contributors. We're going to definitely have you back. Appreciate this conversation. Really thoughtful, good perspective. Jonas Dew, thank you so much, sir. Thank you so much, Andrew. Yes, sir. brother let's do it ah welcome back to her tell i've been talking to cooper conway figured i better start and hit the record button because we've been catching up it's been way too long that's the award-winning cooper conway to you folks he's out at pepperdine finishing up school in one of the most beautiful campuses in the world it's also a young voices contributor good friend very old friend of the program how are you my friend good to talk to you again i'm doing fantastic it's always good to catch up with you and uh it's good to be back on the program thanks for having me yeah, I've been too long, man, but you were busy uh, trying to finish up graduating college. We get it. It's all good. I had not, I had vaguely heard of this, but I hadn't really heard of this. We've talked on this program. We talked last week about educational savings account. We talk a lot about education reform. We've been taking the angle on it that, hey, the fine print matters. We've also talked about, like, mm-hmm. no matter what you do, 90% of kids are going to be in public school no matter what. You still got to do something with public schools. You can't just do school choice and forget the other 90% of kids in the country. Education's complicated. I had never heard of this. Teacher savings account, this is a different concept laid out for me. Yeah, so as you mentioned, ESAs right now are kind of sweeping the nation. North Carolina just last week passed theirs. It's going to be the second largest ESA in the country. And so the principle with ESA is all about choice, right? Empowering parents, empowering families, empowering students to be able to go to the best education um, environment that works best for them. And often a critique is, okay, this is great for parents and students, but what about the teachers? And ESAs have a lot of benefits for teachers, but TSAs are more directly at providing choice for teachers. Um, So TSAs are state-funded restricted use accounts, just like ESAs, um, that started a base amount of around $1,000 but teachers can use them for different educational expenses like classroom supplies and professional development. And Andrew, let me tell you. So I, like you were mentioning, I graduated from Boise state about a year and a half ago and a bunch of my friends were in the education program there and they're teachers themselves now. And so I was scrolling through social media in this fall and all of them were posting these Amazon wish lists and crowdfunding links to say, Hey, help me pay for classroom supplies. And I was like, how, how is this possible? How are we having teachers basically beg their friends and community members to be able to fill a classroom to be able to, so that they can do their job to the best of their ability? And I thought about this because I know that the education system has enough money. From 2002 to 2020, we've increased spending on education per pupil adjusted for inflation by 25%. So that's over $3,000. And now we're spending $18,000 per student. So I think that these TSAs are a great solution to be able to recognize the dignity of the work that they're doing as professional educators and as ways to um, allow some more choice for teachers in the classroom. Yeah, let's stick to the practical example, though, because you start talking numbers, it just goes over everybody's head. Look, I'm a parent. 
I've been in those meetings where you go in, you take your kid to the classroom, and then they give you this big, long list of you need 16 boxes of Kleenexes and whatever and whatever. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. Exactly. I'm a taxpayer. Why are we doing this? It's not that I don't mind pitching in. The other problem is my parents were both public school teachers for their entire careers, other than my dad, who also principal of private school is his quote unquote retirement job. I know the problem here, and it goes exactly to what you were talking about is the problem in education is not funding. It's not money. The money doesn't get where it needs to go. We mm-hmm. have a layer in education that is preventing money from getting. I've changed my terminology. Let me just lay it to you this way. When I talk about educators and teachers now, I say in-classroom teachers different than I just say educators because the way the system's set up now, especially in the public school system, those are two different things. The in-classroom teachers are who you're talking about. They're not getting the support they need because the professional educators that are not in a classroom, not that we don't need some of them, that supervisory intermediate level is the one that is exploding. It's sucking up all the funding. That's where the money's going. Exactly. That's exactly right. Um, you know, every state and district is a little bit different with how the money is being spent. But we know that administrative staff, not in classroom teachers, as you said, that staff model has increased by 20 percent um, since 2002. And so this is a serious issue. Um, and we know so we've had all this all this increase in spending from 2002 to 2020, 25 percent. But the average teacher's salary has actually decreased by 2% with all these influx of funds. Um, and so the question needs to be asked, how are we spending this money and can we spend it better? I think TSAs are a way to do that. It also, Cooper Conway joining us, on a practical level, it has a compression effect. And here's what I mean by the per- compression effect. When you have people making you know, more money than you doing, I'm not going to say less work, but that's not fair, but you're not doing the in-classroom work. You're not dealing with the kids. You're doing paperwork. You're doing meetings, those things. Now you have this push for, well, if I get one more credential or if I go back to school and get one more degree or I can work, I can get to go do that instead of doing this in-classroom teaching. And the in-classroom teaching is the important part of education. I think it has a deleterious effect on what's going on in the classroom And now you've got a little bit of inequality that's not just salary based, but it's also Mm -hmm. upward mobility based. It's also based on options for the teachers. This is where teachers start getting really, really frustrated because now they feel trapped between the parents, the students and the system they're teaching in from above. Exactly. Exactly. And that's why with these TSAs, not only would it serve as a raise, um, I think that it would decrease teacher turnover. Um, It's also super popular amongst teachers. And this isn't going to be some sort of game changing um, approach policy um, reform to the education system like an ESA, I think, has more potential to do. But it is game changing in terms of recognizing the value of teachers. Um, Ninety percent of teachers support TSAs. And this comes at a perfect time where um, there's been a lot of conflict between communities and uh, parents and teachers and their schools. Um, to the point where the Center on Reinventing Public Education had a report that one in three district leaders said that there was a verbal or written threat against an educator. And we really need to mend those ties because, like you said, the bulk of our students are in the public education system. And if we're not all working together to create something better, it's not going to work out for these students. And they're the, one that, they're the ones that are going to get harmed. Yeah, Cooper Conway joining us. Let's stick to this practical level because I, we get into the buzzwords with it. As a supervisor... Think any job you've ever had, think any class you've ever been in. One of the things you need to do as a good supervisor or a good manager is try to take some stress off the employee underneath you. 
it seems to me this is one of those things. Look, the beginning of the school year is one of the most stressful parts of teaching because you got all the new students. You got all the parents asking a million questions. I we kind of had a rule in our house. We're not going to react to the first day of school because whatever the first day of school, you know, you're going to get all those emails that evening of, OK, we're going to change everything now. It just became a running joke. This seems like something that in a very practical way just takes a little pressure off those in-classroom teachers. And now you can address, look, discipline is an issue. The support they get from the school system, curriculum issue. You're just taking something off their plate right off the go that's a hot button issue and just makes their lives 2%, 4%, 5% better right off the bat. And that has an effect on the in-classroom product that that teacher can provide. Exactly. These teachers can feel more comfortable stepping into that first day. They can feel more comfortable in preparing for things like instruction that really um, benefit these students. Um, I like to think that this policy particularly helps first year teachers. When you go and just get tossed into a classroom coming out of college or coming out of an education uh, prep program, you're not going to feel completely prepared and scrambling to go buy supplies out of pocket isn't going to help you. And if you have a little bit of financial funding to say, hey, I know that I have the money to be able to use this and prepare my classroom for the first day, that's going to go a long way. Yeah, Cooper Conway. All right. It's outside the box thinking. It sounds good on paper, but you're talking funding. That means the money's got to come from somewhere. Where's the money coming from? And again, part of the problem with education, it's not money. It's getting it there and where it comes from. Is this coming from the municipalities? Is this coming from tax dollars? Is this going to be some kind of a grant or some kind of program like that? Or is it going to be an all the above thing where you're going to have to probably get it from a couple different places based on the school districts? It's likely that you're going to have to get it from a couple different places, um, starting at the state. This could be an increase in taxes, but it also could be just a reallocation of funding, um, similar to what the ESAs are. And so that's going to be really up to the states to decide how they want to build out these programs. ESAs aren't anywhere quite yet. Some places do have tax credits that help the teachers out, um, but usually they're not enough and they don't cover the average of $850 out of pocket for the funds that teachers are spending out of pocket right now. Yeah, Cooper Conway joining us. Issues like this, I don't know that we talk about it this way, but I think we should. Um, In-classroom supplies, stress on the teachers. You could even talk about school lunch programs. We spend a lot of money on education. We spend enormous amounts of money on education. We don't think of it as an investment in the children that we should get a return on, though, things like the school lunch programs, things like school supplies, things like helping the teachers. They're expensive up front. There is a dollar amount. But when you look at the overall amount of money we're spending on education, to me, and again, I'm not a huge government guy. I think we should have accountability in the funding. This is like preventative maintenance on the students as they go through their, like you're giving them things at the start of the year. You're starting the year out good. School lunches, you're giving them something to go these prevent problems down the road. Is that a good way to look when we try to think outside the box with something like this? Maybe this is not only just for the moment, but it also solves a couple more problems down the road. Yeah, you uh, like, the, like the saying goes, you only have one chance to make a first impression. And I think that the TSA particularly helps with that. Um, so when teachers go in the classroom and they can feel more prepared, students might just have some more respect because they they know that their teacher is there and ready to go but if a teacher's scrambling from all these other factors that they're trying to balance in their life and understandably so um it affects some of the teaching and some of the relationships between the student and their teacher yeah cooper conway i brought it up before i want to retouch on it though because this is specifically where this policy came from as you're talking about it how do we talk about funding the in-classroom teachers better not 
the government, not, you know, the big groups that are, you know, there's a lot of advocacy, but look, education is a big business in America. Not all that's bad, mm-hmm. but you have, you know, we have the book vendor case down in Texas now, millions and millions of dollars for the vendors, the counties and the municipalities, you have whole economic ecosystems built around these schools now. How do we get the conversation back on the in-classroom teachers and the students? Because in my opinion, humble but accurate, I think what's really broken in the education system is the parent student teacher relationship. And if you don't have a good teacher in the classroom, none of this other stuff works. How do we get back to the focus on that in our conversations and discourse? Yeah, I think this is a great start because this policy comes with a posture of recognizing the dignity of the work that they're doing. And right now, often when you have a conversation and a teacher says, oh, I'm a teacher, the response is, oh, that's nice. Or hey, good for you, kind of knowing in the back of their head, like, oh, they're probably not making so much money. And like, you know, that's that's nice that they're doing this type type of service, right? And so I think this is part of a whole cultural mindset that needs to shift in America, where we need to recognize that teachers are professional educators raising up the next um, generation of Americans so that this country can move forward on the, on the right trajectory. Um, and when you phrase it like that, instead of like some type of like, you know, service industry or like some type of little service that these teachers are doing and like out of the good of their heart, like, no, this is important. This is necessary. Um, and so I think being able to say, recognize that in our conversations and recognize that with policy is really important. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. I think what you hit on is really important because again, my parents are both school teachers. So I, mm-hmm. I, I see what goes on behind the scenes. I see the weeks of meetings before school starts. My dad always hated those. He's like, I got to go sit here for two weeks. I just, just let me teach. Um, we don't respect the in-classroom teachers enough, but I think education has a little bit of a problem. I've used the comparison with the DOD and the military a little bit. We spend a lot of money on quote unquote, the military, but we need to be more specific. Like, okay, the military is this very big bureaucracy. That doesn't mean all that money goes to the frontline troops in the uniform that are doing the actual business of defending us. I think maybe that mindset needs to go to education. And then we can understand like, no, no, this is a government service like the DMV. You wouldn't send your kid to the DMV and just trust the DMV. But that's the bureaucracy. We do need to get the respect back to these teachers. How do I say that in a nice, better way? Because you're smarter than me and go to Pepperdine. How do I say that in a nice little soundbite? Because we live in that buzzword, but that's really the problem, separating the bureaucracy from those high ideals you just talked about. Like, no, this is important. This is a new generation. This is one of the few things where we really do need to do it for the children, as as trite as that is. Yeah, I wish I had a one-line soundbite that is going to be able to fix our problems here. But uh, if you do come up with that, let me know. Um, but I think it really is kind of the, of the conversation of, okay, how do we empower teachers? And right now we have a system that doesn't necessarily recognize teachers for the value that they provide, especially excellent teachers. Um, you know, Andrew Yang had this slogan where uh, a good teacher is worth their weight in gold. And I completely agree with him. Um, as, as you were saying that your parents are teachers, uh, my dad was a teacher. And I, re- I remember him going to garage sales and libraries to buy these cheap cheap books to stock his library for um, our English class and being able to say like, Hey, that's a really important that the fact that he's doing that, we shouldn't, we should make sure as a school, he isn't paying out of pocket for this out of his own salary. And that this should just come as is, um, is really important. Yeah. Cooper Conway. I got one problem with this though. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not sure TSA as an acronym is going to fly. Cause that's got some negative connotation for other things. Do we need to maybe work on the marketing and branding here a little bit? 
I think there's definitely room for improvement on the marketing and branding. I completely agree. I'm not a huge uh, TSA guy when it comes to the airport. And so when I was writing this, I was like, all right, this needs to change if we can. Maybe we can uh, figure something else. Maybe teacher empowerment accounts, um, PEA, that could be better, but uh, we'll see. The Benjamin product, because it's all about the Benjamins. Maybe do something like that. Uh, Cooper Conway, our good friend from Young Voices. The whole piece is in the examiner. We're going to link to the whole thing. He's got a couple links in there, too, by the way. Some polling data is buried down in there that is very, very interesting. You might want to look. That's polling on what the teachers want, by the way. You really want to check that out. Coop, great catching up with you again. Let folks know how they can follow you and keep up with you until we get you back on again. And it won't be this long again, my friend, I promise. Yes, yes. Um, you can follow me on Twitter or X, I guess, um, at Cooper Conway one. Uh, I know you got feelings on Elon Musk. So maybe we talk about that next time I'm on, but it's always a pleasure. Yeah, we got to see if he still owns it by then, but we'll see how this goes. <laughs> the award winning Cooper Conway, Young Voices, Pepperdine. Congratulations ahead of time on getting your last year done. Talk to you soon, my friend. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, sir. back to her tell let's go to the washington post and end on a good note with some of this heavier stuff i've been talking about quoting from the washington post this is a piece by kathy free we will link to it on the herdtell.substack.com show notes if someone said falcon meaning the bird not the spaceship you star wars nerds the next word to come to mind probably wouldn't be artist but ferris burr an american keystroll with an injured wheel is headlining art classes in Vermont and drawing crowds with his talented talents. That is some excellent alliteration. Well done. A couple of paintings done by Ferris Burr are, and by the way, Ferris Burr is spelled F-E-R-R-I-S-B-U-R-G-H, are now being auctioned at a fundraiser online, and the Raptor recently showed off his skills at the Vermont Institute of Natural Science. About four years ago, the young male keystroll was brought to the bird rescue at the Vermont Institute of Natural Science in Quichi, Vermont. Quichi, I'm probably saying that wrong. I apologize. After he was discovered in the nearby town of Ferrisburg, a place known for its early art colonies, as well as being a stop on the Underground Railroad in the 1800s. The bird had landed on the shoulder of an unsuspecting person who was out for a walk near his home. The keystroll was loud and chattering away as he perched on the man and was probably looking to be fed said Anna Morris, director of on-site and outreach programs at the Institute. The person who brought him in rightfully assumed that this was not normal behavior for a keystroll. Morris and her colleagues figured that this is his willingness to approach humans was because he had been kept illegally in captivity. Vermont law requires a person having a permit along with proper housing and equipment to keep a falcon. Employees at the rescue center decided that the keystroll Ferrisburg after the town he was found. The raptor conducted himself as if he'd been imprinted on humans as a baby, Morris said, so the bird didn't know how to behave in the wild and probably wouldn't have survived there, plus the injuries. Workers thought the keystroll would make an excellent educational flight ambassador. For several years, Ferris Berg's keeper brought him out during field trips and classes so he could fly back and forth and people could get an up-close look at the smallest member of the falcon family. They'd also used the little raptor to teach visitors how to help keep keystrolls in the wild safe, by avoiding pesticides and building keystroll nesting boxes to boost the population that had declined by almost 50% since the 70s. 
in June, Ferrisburg's role at the bird rescue took a turn when he fractured one of his wings and couldn't fly. Mal Muratori, an environmental educator and family programs director at the Institute, found the injured bird on the ground one morning and said it was unclear how he'd been hurt, and the veterinarian determined he had an old fracture and a new fracture in the right wing and that the metabolic bone disease probably caused by poor nutrition as a younger bird. Quote, in the wild, 80% of Ferrisburg's diet would have been insects, supplemented with mice and small birds, but if he was raised in captivity, we have no idea what he ate, and his bones are very brittle. Petrol's keepers wanted to keep him engaged with the public after his injury, even though he couldn't fly anymore. So they had recently watched a video of friend painted with a crow named Tuck in Tennessee. More alliteration. The crow painted with its beak using a small sponge that had been dipped into paint. Before coming to the Vermont Institute of Natural Science, Muratoli had watched a crow paint with a brush, and they wondered if Ferrisburg might be able to do it. It would be a form of stimulation and also exercise. I thought it was a cute idea that could also help him educate people about the keystrolls, said Smith. Ferrisburg said no longer do what he did as an ambassador, but maybe he could do art instead. So they found an airy space in the building and put down some newspaper and sheets of white paper dabbed in non-toxic blue teal and pink paint, and they brought Ferrisburg out of his enclosure. They used hand signals that he recognized, two fingers tapping on a spot, to get him to run through the paint in exchange for his favorite snack of mealworms. Soon the bird was running all over the paper, leaving colorful tracks in exchange for treats. A little extortion, but whatevs. She and Muratori saw that Ferrisburg seemed to enjoy running across the paper and seeing the colors, so they came up with the idea of having him leave a coloring with keystrokes class. More than a dozen people paid $10 to show up for the first class, spending an evening coloring pictures with crayons or doing freeform paintings of Ferrisburg as the raptor created his own work, artwork in front of the classroom. Smith and Muratori placed 14 small white canvases next to each other, and Ferrisburg walked around them in the blue, yellow, and fuchsia paint. His bright tracks were transferred to the canvas as he scurried about to get his mealworm treats. He took to it right away. He was a natural. He loved the exercise and the stimulation. Everyone in class had a lot of fun painting and coloring artworks of Ferrisburg while he made his own little paintings. While Ferrisburg created his mini action paintings, Smith and Moratori gave the class a lesson about the keystrolls. Another American keystroll, Westford, blew in and went back and forth between the instructor's six gloves as they talked about the importance of helping keep raptors in the wild. Quote, if you ever find a baby bird outside and think it needs help, call it a wildlife rehabilitator. Don't ever try to raise these birds alone or they'll end up like Ferrisburg. He's a little bird who thinks he's human. As Smith and Moratori figured out if Ferrisburg is up to leading another class, they are looking into whether some of the Institute's other birds might also enjoy making art. We're thinking we're trying to take them up on painting and see what some of them happens. It's good rehab, good exercise, and now they are training a peregrine falcon named Hawaii. Channel is inner artist as well. The same as Ferrisburg. Instructors have previously tried creating art with one of their Harris hawks, but it didn't work out. Quote, it wasn't a failure. The hawk loves shredding the paper. But they are all kinds of mediums. Maybe we'll have a poetry event next month and let the birds pick different words. I like stories like this. Fun with animals. They get to rehab an injured animal. People get to learn about them more and even get to make a little artwork. And hey, modern art masterpiece you couldn't tell whether a person or an animal did most of those anyway, so whatevs. We'll link to the whole piece. Make sure you check it out. And if you're in the Vermont area, go check out Ferrisburg and his painting feet portraits. A little more alliteration.
And that'll do it for Herd Tell. However you're watching or listening to the program, we sure appreciate it. Make sure you're leaving a review and a rating and a comment on whatever platform you are. Make sure you're subscribed or following or whatever that platform calls it. Even if you listen on multiple platforms, do one for each. That would be great. That lets the platform know our program is worth promoting. And we don't do any advertising other than our social media. So if you would spare us a click or two to let people know on your own social media, our program is worth checking out. Share Hertel, share the Substack, share the program, share whatever platform you're listening or watching on. We'd sure appreciate it. That'll do it for Hertel. So wherever you and yours are across the street or around the world, we hope you are well. We hope you are well fed. And we'll talk to you again real soon for more Hertel. All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on the Hurt Tell Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, Head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. they got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics, from the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutans. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? This is the podcast for you. Find The Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcasts or at www.thesweatypenguin.com.